Chapter Three of Book One of Les Miserables, Volume Four, by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rachel Weaver. Les Miserables, Volume Four, by Victor Hugo, translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book One, A Few Pages of History. Chapter Three, Louis Philippe. Revolutions have a terrible arm and a happy hand; they strike firmly and choose well. Even incomplete, even debased and abused, and reduced to their state of a junior revolution, like the Revolution of eighteen thirty, they nearly always retain sufficient providential lucidity to prevent them from falling amiss. Their eclipse is never an abdication. Nevertheless. Let us not boast too loudly. Revolutions also may be deceived, and grave errors have been seen. Let us return to eighteen thirty. Eighteen thirty, in its deviation, had good luck. In the establishment which entitled itself order after the revolution had been cut short, the king amounted to more than royalty. Louis Philippe was a rare man, the son of a father to whom history will accord certain attenuating circumstances. But also as worthy of esteem as that father had been of blame, possessing all private virtues and many public virtues, careful of his health, of his fortune, of his person, of his affairs, knowing the value of a minute and not always the value of a year, sober, serene, peaceable, patient, a good man and a good prince, sleeping with his wife. And having in his palace lackeys charged with the duty of showing the conjugal bed to the bourgeois, an ostentation of the regular sleeping apartment, which had become useful after the former illegitimate displays of the elder branch, knowing all the languages of Europe, and what is more rare, all the languages of all interests, and speaking them, an admirable representative of the middle class, but outstripping it, and in every way greater than it. Possessing excellent sense, while appreciating the blood from which he had sprung, counting most of all on his intrinsic worth, and on the question of his race, very particular, declaring himself Orleans and not Bourbon. Thoroughly, the first prince of the blood royal, while he was still only a serene highness, but a frank bourgeois from the day he became king, diffuse in public. Concise in private, reputed but not proved to be a miser, at bottom, one of those economists who are readily prodigal at their own fancy or duty, lettered, but not very sensitive to letters, a gentleman but not a chevalier, simple, calm and strong, adored by his family and his household, a fascinating talker, an undeceived statesman. Inwardly cold, dominated by immediate interest, always governing at the shortest range, incapable of rancor and gratitude, making use without mercy of superiority on mediocrity, clever in getting parliamentary majorities to put in the wrong those mysterious unanimities which mattered duly under thrones, unreserved, sometimes imprudent in his lack of reserve, but with marvelous address in that imprudence. Fertile in expedients, in countenances, in masks, making France fear Europe and Europe France, 
incontestably fond of his country, but preferring his family, assuming more domination than authority, and more authority than dignity, a disposition which has this unfortunate property, that, as it turns everything into success, it admits of ruse, and does not absolutely repudiate baseness, but which has this valuable side, that it preserves politics from violent shocks, the state from fractures, and society from catastrophes. Minute, correct, vigilant, attentive, sagacious, indefatigable, contradicting himself at times, and giving himself the lie, bold against Austria and Ancona, obstinate against England in Spain, bombarding Antwerp, and paying off Pritchard, signing the Marseille with conviction, inaccessible to despondency, to lassitude, to the taste for the beautiful and the ideal, to daring generosity, to utopia, to chimeras, to wrath, to vanity, to fear, possessing all the forms of personal intrepidity, a general at Valme, a soldier at Jemaps, attacked eight times by regicide, and always smiling, brave as a grenadier, courageous as a thinker, uneasy only in the face of the chances of a European shaking up, and unfitted for great political adventures, always ready to risk his life, never his work, distinguishing his will and influence in order that he might be obeyed as an intelligence rather than as a king, endowed with observation and not with divination, not very attentive to minds, but knowing men, that is to say, requiring to see in order to judge, prompt and penetrating good sense, practical wisdom, easy speech, prodigious memory, drawing incessantly on this memory his only point of resemblance with Caesar, Alexander, and Napoleon, knowing deeds, facts, details, dates, proper names, ignorant of tendencies, passions, the diverse geniuses of the crowd, the interior aspirations, the hidden and obscure uprisings of souls, in a word, all that can be designated as the invisible currents of consciences, accepted by the surface, but little in accord with France lower down, extricating himself by dint of tact, governing too much and not enough, his own first minister, excellent at creating out of the pettiness of realities an obstacle to the immensity of ideas, mingling a genuine creative faculty of civilization, of order and organization, an indescribable spirit of proceedings and chicanery, the founder and lawyer of a dynasty, having something of Charlemagne and something of an attorney, in short, a lofty and original figure, a prince who understood how to create authority in spite of the uneasiness of France, and power in spite of the jealousy of Europe. Louis-Philippe will be classed among the eminent men of his century, and would be ranked among the most illustrious governors of history, had he loved glory but a little, and if he had had the sentiment of what is great to the same degree as the feeling for what is useful. Louis-Philippe had been handsome, and in his old age he remained graceful. Not always approved by the nation, he always was so by the masses. He pleased. He had that gift of charming. He lacked majesty. He wore no crown, although a king, and no white hair, although an old man. His manners belonged to the old regime, and his habits to the new. 
a mixture of the noble and the bourgeois which suited eighteen thirty louis philippe was transition reigning he had preserved the ancient pronunciation and the ancient orthography which he placed at the service of opinions modern he loved poland and hungary but he wrote les polonois and he pronounced les hongrais he wore the uniform of the national guard like charles x and the ribbon of the legion of honor like napoleon he went a little to chapel not at all to the chase never to the opera incorruptible by sacristans by worshippers in by ballet dancers this made a part of his bourgeois popularity he had no heart he went out with his umbrella under his arm and this umbrella long formed a part of his oral he was a bit of a mason a bit of a gardener something of a doctor he bled a postillion who had tumbled from his horse louis philippe no more went about without his lancet than did henry the fourth without his poniard the royalists jeered at this ridiculous king the first who had ever shed blood without the object of healing for the grievances against louis philippe there is one deduction to be made there is that which accuses the royalty that which accuses the reign that which accuses the king three columns which all give different totals democratic right confiscated progress becomes a matter of secondary interest the protests of the street violently repressed military execution of insurrections the rising passed over by arms the rue transonian the councils of war the absorption of the real country by the legal country on half shares with three hundred thousand privileged persons these are the deeds of royalty belgium refused Algeria too harshly conquered, and, as in the case of India, by the English, with more barbarism than civilization. The breach of faith to Abd al-Qadir, Blayet, Deutsch bought, Pritchard paid. These are the doings of the reign. The policy which was more domestic than national was the doing of the king. As will be seen, the proper deduction having been made, the king's charge is decreased. This is his great fault he was modest in the name of france whence arises this fault we will state it louis philippe was rather too much of a paternal king that incubation of a family with the objection of founding a dynasty is afraid of everything and does not like to be disturbed hence excessive timidity which is displeasing to the people who have the fourteenth of july in their civil and austerlitz in their military traditions moreover if we deduct the public duties which require to be fulfilled first of all that deep tenderness of louis philippe towards his family was deserved by the family that domestic group was worthy of admiration virtues there dwelt side by side with talents one of louis philippe's daughters marie de orleans placed the name of her race among artists as charles de orleans had placed it among poets she made of her soul a marble which she named jean d'arc two of louis philippe's daughters elicited from metternich this eulogium they are young people such as are rarely seen and princes such as are never seen this without any dissimulation and also without any exaggeration is the truth about louis philippe to be prince equality 
to bear in his own person the contradiction of the restoration and the revolution to have that disquieting side of the revolutionary which becomes reassuring in governing power therein lay the fortune of louis philippe in eighteen thirty never was there a more complete adaptation of a man to an event the one entered into the other and the incarnation took place louis philippe is eighteen thirty made man moreover he had in his favor that great recommendation to the throne exile he had been proscribed a wanderer poor he had lived by his own labor in switzerland this heir to the richest princely domains in france had sold an old horse in order to obtain bread at richanau he gave lessons in mathematics while his sister adelaide did wool-work and sewed these souvenirs connected with a king rendered the bourgeoisie enthusiastic he had with his own hands demolished the iron cage of mont saint maquille built by louis the eleventh and used by louis the fifteenth he was the companion of Dumouriez. he was the friend of lafayette he had belonged to the jacobins club marabou had slapped him on the shoulder downtown had said to him young man at the age of four-and-twenty in ninety-three being then monsieur de chartres he had witnessed from the depth of a box the trial of louis the sixteenth so well named that poor tyrant the blind clairvoyance of the revolution breaking royalty in the king and the king with royalty did so almost without noticing the man in the fierce crushing of the idea the vast storm of the assembly tribunal the public wrath interrogating carpe not knowing what to reply the alarming stupefied vacillation by the royal head beneath that sombre breath the relative innocence of all in that catastrophe of those who condemned as well as of the man condemned he had looked on those things he had contemplated that giddiness he had seen the centuries appear before the bar of the assembly convention he had beheld behind louis the sixteenth that unfortunate passer-by who is made responsible the terrible culprit the monarchy rise through the shadows and there had lingered in his soul the respectful fear of these immense justices of the populace which are almost as impersonal as the justice of god the trace left in him by the revolution was prodigious its memory was like a living imprint of those great years minute by minute one day in the presence of a witness whom we are not permitted to doubt he rectified from memory the whole of the letter a in the alphabetical list of the constituent assembly louis philippe was a king of the broad daylight while he reigned the press was free the tribune was free conscience and speech were free the laws of september are open to sight although fully aware of the gnawing power of light on privileges he left his throne exposed to the light history will do justice to him for this loyalty louis philippe like all historical men who have passed from the scene is to-day put on trial by the human conscience his case is as yet only in the lower court the hour when history speaks with its free and venerable accent has not yet sounded for him the moment has not come to pronounce a definite judgment on this king the austere and illustrious historian louis blanc 
has himself recently softened his first verdict. Louis-Philippe was elected by those two almosts which are called the 221 and 1830, that is to say, by a half-parliament and a half-revolution. And in any case, from the superior point of view where philosophy must place itself, we cannot judge him here, as the reader has seen above, except with certain reservations in the name of the absolute democratic principle. In the eyes of the absolute, outside these two rights, the right of man in the first place, and the right of the people in the second, all is usurpation. But what we can say, even at the present day, that after making these reserves is that to sum up the whole and in whatever manner he is considered louis philippe taken in himself and from the point of view of human goodness will remain to use the antique language of ancient history one of the best princes who ever sat on a throne what is there against him that throne take away louis philippe the king there remains the man and the man is good. He is good at times, even to the point of being admirable. Often, in the midst of his greatest souvenirs, after a day of conflict with the whole diplomacy of the continent, he returned at night to his apartments, and there, exhausted with fatigue, overwhelmed with sleep, what did he do? He took a death sentence and passed the night in revising a criminal suit, considering it something to hold his own against Europe, but that it was a still greater matter to rescue a man from the executioner. He obstinately maintained his opinion against his keeper of the seals. He disputed the ground with the guillotine foot by foot against the crown attorneys, those chatterers of the law, as he called them. Sometimes the pile of sentences covered his table. He examined them all. It was anguish to him to abandon these miserable, condemned heads. One day he said to the same witness, to whom we have recently referred, I won seven last night. During the early years of his reign, the death penalty was as good as abolished, and the erection of a scaffold was a violence committed against the king. The grieve having disappeared with the elder branch, a bourgeois place of execution was instituted under the name of the Barrière Saint-Jacques. Practical men felt the necessity of a quasi-legitimate guillotine, and this was one of the victories of Casimir Perrier, who represented the narrow sides of the bourgeoisie, over Louis-Philippe, who represented its liberal sides. Louis-Philippe annotated Beccaria with his own hand. After the face-scheme machine, he exclaimed, what a pity that I was not wounded! Then I might have pardoned. On another occasion, alluding to the resistance offered by his ministry, he wrote in connection with a political criminal, who is one of the most generous figures of our day. His pardon is granted. It only remains for me to obtain it. Louis-Philippe was as gentle as Louis the Ninth, and as kindly as Henry the Fourth. Now, to our mind in history, where kindness is the rarest of pearls, the man who is kindly almost takes precedence of the man who is great. Louis-Philippe, having been severely judged by some, harshly perhaps by others, it is quite natural that a man, himself a phantom at the present day, who knew that king, should come and testify in his favor before history. This deposition, whatever else it may be, 
is evidently and above all things entirely disinterested an epitaph penned by a dead man is sincere one shade may console another shade the sharing of the same shadows confers the right to praise it it is not greatly to be feared that it will ever be said of two tombs in exile this one flattered the other End of Book One, Chapter Three. Recording by Rachel Weaver, Boston, Massachusetts.